As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Episode 135 of the Keith Law Show. I'll be joined today by author Robert Kolker, whose books include Hidden Valley Road and The Lost Girls, which, uh, for those of you who followed the Gilgo Beach murders on Long Island, he wrote a book about that case 10 years ago, and it was possibly solved earlier this year. Uh, I'll talk mostly about Hidden Valley Road, Inside the Mind of an American Family. Uh, His writing is wonderful. You can also see some of his work in the New York Times, and so we're going to talk about both of those books. In the meantime, I posted for subscribers to The Athletic my ranking of the top 50 free agents in the class. We have uh, updated that a little bit as some players had options picked up or did not have options picked up or declined. So trying to keep that list updated for a little bit. Once players actually start signing new contracts, I will probably stop adding names to the list because at that point I'll be moving on to analyses. Anytime a major free agent changes teams or anytime we have a trade of any significance at all, I will write up some kind of reaction, breakdown, or analysis for The Athletic, again, for folks who subscribe to the site. Uh, I also should have another review, board game review, going up this week at Paste of the game Fit to Print, which is from Flat Out Games, also distributed by Alderac. Um, if you have played Cascadia or uh, Calico or Verdant, it's from the same publisher, and it is from the designer of Tiny Towns and Wormholes. So uh, look for that. That should be up at some point later this week. My guest today is journalist Robert Kolker, author of the books Hidden Valley Road, Inside the Mind of an American Family, and Lost Girls, an Unsolved American Mystery, which might actually have been solved earlier this year. Robert, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. So I'd like to start with your more recent book, Hidden Valley Road, which is about the Galvins, who had 12 children, 10 boys, six of whom developed schizophrenia as they grew up. You seem to have stumbled on one of the most fascinating stories I've read in ages with an incredible amount of detail in the book as well. So let me just start by asking, how did you first find out about this family and their unique medical history? I um, I had a lot 
of experience writing sort of research heavy narrative uh, feature stories, magazine stories in one book. And um, most of them ended up bringing me back to the subject of families in crisis. And mm -hmm. so when a mutual friend of the Galvins and mine uh, heard that the Galvins were interested in letting the world know about their story, he immediately thought of me, not because I had any special ability as a science journalist or or even knew much about schizophrenia, which was the prevailing issue with that family, but because I had written about families in trouble before. And in fact, my, my first book, Lost Girls, was about five different families in trouble. And, um, and so when I first met the family, I was stunned and really brought low by hearing about everything they went through. It, it wasn't merely a schizophrenia story. It was a story about sexual abuse and a story about a murder-suicide and a story about a, a father's sudden illness and a story about stigma and fear of, of being known by their neighbors, being known by the world, and, um, and, a, and an enduring medical mystery. There was so much we don't know about schizophrenia and still don't know. And so I, I was afraid to dive into it wholeheartedly. I thought maybe I could break it off into chunks and do a science story for a magazine. But the more I talked to the family and the more I learned about schizophrenia, uh, the more I saw how how ready the family was to talk about everything they went through and how potentially eye-opening that could be for so many people who uh, shy away from thinking about extreme mental illness and people who have it you know, in their life somehow and aren't talking about it. I thought the book could really be one of a kind. And so I started to get very excited about it and and thought got very ambitious for it, which is doesn't happen to me that often. I tend to be in my career, I I, I like you know, I'm not a big risk taker. Um and and so when a big idea comes along that I am excited about, I really pay attention and go wholeheartedly into it. I, I'd like to Doug, before we get a little bit more to the detail on the book, too, you mentioned not knowing much about schizophrenia beforehand. I wasn't sure. I certainly couldn't tell. Right. You you seem to know a lot about schizophrenia, having read the book. And it was also really interesting to me because people it drives me nuts when people say, oh, it's a little schizophrenic. Right. And you even mentioned that, that people misunderstand. They really think schizophrenic means dissociative identity disorder, which is not the same thing, obviously, the same way people say. And there's that song. I hate, I feel I'm a little bipolar. That's not really what that means. It's pretty ableist. So uh, tell me about that side too. Did you kind of take a crash course in schizophrenia and mental illness and, and understanding too there, as you said, there's a lot we really don't understand about schizophrenia, about how it works and what its origins are. I thought perhaps I might audit a neurobiology class or something. And th that was kind of a non-starter. It's just not the, my, wasn't my way in for understanding <laughs> this illness. But I guess there are two ways of thinking about the, um, what I learned about schizophrenia over time. The, the first was how I was amazed by how much I didn't know, that how much the mm -hmm. popular culture had failed to prepare me. Um, I'm I'm in my 50s. I was in my 20s when Prozac was coming along, and so I, I as an adult, I, I and a lot of people have lived through the age of biological psychiatry, where you think about mental illness as predominantly a brain chemistry problem, and you think, well, if you find the right pill, and you're lucky enough that it works for you, and you have good therapists too, then maybe you can rectify the situation. And so many different mental health conditions, like bipolar disorder, anxiety, and depression um, 
they they all they all seem treatable. And I just assumed that schizophrenia was the same way. And what I quickly learned is that in general, we're using the same generation of medications for schizophrenia that we used in 1970. There's really been no huge game-changing drugs since then. And that's shocking to me. Um, and not only that, those drugs, they, they may help you manage symptoms, but they are nothing like a cure. So there are some people who are, are lucky enough to move you know, through the world comfortably with schizophrenia thanks to the meds. And then there are other people for whom the meds do practically nothing except zone, you know, zone them out. And that, that was really shocking to me. And I, it made me feel a sense of urgency in telling this story because here's, here's one family, but, but there are 3 million people in America alone who are walking around waiting for that medical uh, revolution. And it just hasn't happened. And the second thing is that um, ways that I was deliberately misinformed, and we all are by, by the culture. I think when we look at extreme mental illness in our, in our American society, we either, uh, we, we, we find different ways to other it. Like either, either they are um, monsters, right? Mm -hmm. Like Hannibal Lecter or, or somebody like that. Um, and, and they're, uh, you know, from Norman Bates onward, right? We, we blame, you know, uh, evil on mental illness, extreme mental illness. Mm -hmm. And so we're scared of them. Or we go the other way and we elevate them and turn them into secret mystical beings who have a special sight into something. And then, you know, the way that autism had a had a Rain Man problem, um, yep. you know, where where Rain Man opened people's eyes to autism to a point, but also othered it a little bit and made it made it seem like if you have autism, you must be great at counting cards in Vegas. <laughs> that there's a sim something similar with schizophrenia where you think you know, where you watch a beautiful mind and in which in many ways is a very helpful movie, but in other ways, it makes you think, well, you know, that person has a hotline into genius that other people don't have. And that's not necessarily true. And so my challenge, I thought with this book was to write about the mentally ill members of this family, like they were human beings, that they were just people with particular afflictions, but people nonetheless, who had personalities and likes and dislikes and things they like to do and people they like to talk to. And um, and I was worried, frankly, because I was naive about a lot of this, worried that it would be impossible to do that. But then the second I met the three surviving mentally ill brothers in this family, I completely settled down. I mean, they, they are all, you know, charming and interesting people who are their own people. And also the symptoms of their schizophrenia are different. I guess that that's a third thing, right, that I should have said, which is that it's not a cookie cutter condition. Some people have schizophrenia or what's called schizophrenia and they are catatonic and others have hallucinations and others have delusions and others have voices that they hear and others are paranoid. And yet we all call it schizophrenia. And that I think is the big takeaway. I think that anyone listening might want to take back is that schizophrenia is not like COVID-19. You can't look at it in a test tube or take a sample of it and diagnose someone with it. It is a classification of symptoms. It's a it's a word we've come up with to help diagnosticians come up with ways to treat a severe, severe mental health condition. And there could be a time not so long from now where it splits up and becomes schizophrenia mm -hmm. type A and schizophrenia type B, or the word schizophrenia disappears entirely because it's possible we're dealing with several different, very, very di you know, discrete disorders. That's another wonderful analogy that I got from an epidemiologist I interviewed for Hidden Valley Road, where he said that centuries ago, 
people looked at fever as an illness. Like what's mm-hmm. wrong with her? She has a fever. But then as the years go on, you know, people realize that that fever was the symptom and that it could be anything. It could be an infection. It could be a virus. It could be an injury. It could be, you know, there could be any number of things happening to cause the fever. And that very well might be what we call schizophrenia. It's merely a sign that something is going on in your brain and we don't know what it is, but it could be any number of things. One of the many things I really liked about Hidden Valley Road, and you just hinted at this a little bit too, is that each of the kids, they're all adults now, obviously, each of the, the Galvin's children, they are characters. They're really unique characters. And the fact that six of them all have the diagnosis of schizophrenia does not mean they're all the same. It manifests quite differently in all of them. And, and obviously, one of them uh, turned out to be a, a monster for reasons totally unrelated to the schizophrenia. Um, and so, but each of them is unique. So you have 12 Twelve people, not even counting the the parents too, who are, you know, I think very well defined characters on the page too. Which said to me, you had incredible access to this family too, and you did say that they uh, sort of approached you through through an intermediary because they wanted to tell their stories. But how receptive were the, or I guess what was the range of receptiveness on the family side to you coming in and? telling their stories and hearing their secrets and hearing uh, what I assume were a lot of really unpleasant memories that at least some of them, it seems like were were more reluctant to talk to you than others. That's certainly true. Uh, I, um, I remain very grateful to the entire family and I was to, you know, delighted to find that they wanted to participate, but it's not what I predicted. Uh, my, the first approach came from the two sisters in the family who are the two youngest mm-hmm. members of the family. And they were on the phone with me and they told me everything you know, all the all the horrible things that had happened. And then they said that for many, many decades, they had been thinking of trying to write something themselves, perhaps a memoir, perhaps something where they would interview family members, but that they never had made it very far at all. They had, they basically were nowhere with that. And they decided to see if maybe there could be something that would be like the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks, where Rebecca Skloot, amazing journalist, embeds mm-hmm. with the family, writes a book completely independently, with 100% journalistic control so it's not it's not a collaboration it's a it's a traditional journalism and uh and talks about their family because they had come away feeling that their family was special that there had been science based on research of their family and so i, I immediately was was skeptical to be honest i i um First, I thought just because these two sisters are interested in this doesn't mean that there isn't someone else in the family who would be dead set against it. Mm-hmm. And there are medical privacy laws in our country, HIPAA laws, and all it would take is one brother to stand up and say, are you kidding me? And then suddenly there'd be a big fight in the family and I would be adding to the suffering that the family was going through. Mm-hmm. And that that was the last thing I wanted to do. And um, I, I was concerned about that. And then I was concerned that the family might not actually be as significant as Henrietta Lacks was. They, they did not cure schizophrenia, right? They didn't lead to any advance in treatments. And, and so I thought, well, what do we learn from this family? What is worthwhile? And so I was very cautious. And I said to the sisters, books take forever, but if you're willing to be patient, why don't I get on the phone once a week with each member of the family? Starting mm-hmm. with Mimi, the mother, who was almost 90 years old. And I'll spend an hour with each person. So an hour a week, 
you know, I, mm -hmm. I'll talk to a different member of the Galvin family. And then maybe along the way, I would call up various people who were smart about schizophrenia and ask them if this family was interesting to them. And if so, why? And then maybe I would get on the phone with a couple of researchers who the family had met over the years just to check in with them and see what was to be known about them. And I was, um, I said to the sisters, um, we'll all know, you know, it's spring now, by the end of the summer, we're all gonna know one way or another whether this is a good idea for a book. And it'll be abundantly clear if it isn't. And if it isn't, I'll take the tapes of all the calls that I had and I'll give them to you, to the sisters, and you can write a memoir or do it a different way. And it'll be my good deed for the year and, and we'll, we'll part as friends, it'll all be fine. But then as the summer went on, it was amazing to me. All of the brothers were up for it. Um, so was the mother, Mimi, which was not a slam dunk. For many years, she resisted the world knowing about what was going on. But I think there were things I hadn't considered. And one was that Mimi, the mother, was 90. And it felt like it was sort of now or, now or never for her. It was kind of her last mm -hmm. chance. Um, also, the, the researchers who had met with the family, one of them had some interesting genetic information about the family that could feel like like progress, like a nice thing to say at the end of the book that helps the family understand the genetic aspect of their their condition better. So that felt exciting to me. Mm -hmm. But um, more than anything, it was that everybody who was a member of the family said yes. I, I had not considered <clears throat> I had not considered um, how much authority the sisters had that the, the sisters as the youngest members of the family really had suffered a great deal, that most of the horrible things that had happened in the family had trickled down to them because they were in the house longer as the youngest. Some of the older fam family members got out very relatively early and moved away. So they would say things to me like, if, if my sisters want to do this, then yes, the answer is yes. And, um, and, and of course, as you said, 12 siblings, two parents, how do you write about them all as people? Um, how do you help readers not want to throw the book against the wall in frustration? How do you keep everybody straight? And inevitably mm -hmm. what happens is that various family members um, have the spotlight <clears throat> and others sort of recede into the background and get you know sort of jobbed in from time to time. So you get a sense of what they're up to. So the two sisters and a couple of the brothers and the parents, particularly the mother, are sort of foregrounded in this book. And then mm -hmm. several of the other brothers are deployed from time to time. They come in as sort of interesting um, palate cleansers in between the main story. But that way the reader calms down a little bit and knows that sooner or later, we're gonna get back to Lindsay. I know that Lindsay and Margaret are are the stars of the book. And, and so even if you start a chapter on another brother, I'm, I'm relaxed because I know that we're gonna get back to the sisters sooner or later. And it, it kind of gives you a little guide as you go along. Even the, I would say even the chapters that were on the four brothers who did not develop schizophrenia are still really well done, really interesting. And you give their characters definition because the six, so we've got 12 siblings, six developed it, six didn't. The six who didn't, as you said, were affected in all different ways. Obviously the sisters did bear kind of the bigger brunt of it, but all four of the other brothers were affected uh, quite directly by it and it altered the courses of their lives and they would what i found particularly interesting because it seems to have come up correct me if this is wrong but it seems to have just been a much more present concern for the four boys who didn't develop it than it was for the two sisters 
that, oh, maybe I'm going to get this too, right? They would see their brothers develop it because for folks who didn't follow that, the first 10 children were all boys. The sisters were the last two. And so you had this sort of interspersing of boys who didn't develop the schizophrenia, didn't develop schizophrenia among the six who did. And it just seems like so many times, so much of their lives, this was present kind of just behind them. Like you might get this thing and there's really nothing you can do about it. And that really did come across on the page. I imagine it was a pre- an ever-present concern for them, at least well into early adulthood. Yeah, they they all are haunted about it in different ways. And I think that's a fair statement to say that the brothers who are close in age to the sick brothers are experiencing it differently. Um, the first, the two oldest brothers both had both had severe mental illness, both had schizophrenia in different mm-hmm. ways. And the third brother, John, did not. And John was caught in the crossfire of those two brothers fighting each other and losing their tempers with one another. And he got out as soon as he could. It, for him, it was a matter of survival. He he moved away when he was you know, 17, he went to college and then got married almost immediately and moved away from there. He almost never went home. He would go home to visit. And um, meanwhile, there are other brothers who are young, some of the younger brothers, uh, particularly Mark Galvin, who his entire social life was wrapped up with the three other brothers who were close to him in age. And all three of those brothers, one by one, um, Joe and Matt and Peter, all um, develop severe mental illness, all develop schizophrenia. And it's heartbreaking because he essentially loses his entire family. Like there, it's a little family unit within the family and he is alone mm-hmm. uh, because of it. The sisters, meanwhile, are are growing up with it, with it, it the word haunting is really quite right because they mm-hmm. are they are concerned that they'll wake up one day and they'll be next. But also they are concerned that any problem they have, they cannot share with their parents because the parents are under under so much pressure and dealing with so many five alarm fires that they just can't come to their parents with a one alarm fire. And, and if they do, it's very possible that their mother will look at them and say, you know, well, maybe you're next, maybe you're getting schizophrenia too. So it, it becomes a very silent household where everyone has to be perfect. That if you're getting a B and not an A, maybe you're going to get, get schizophrenia. And that's its own deal. So yeah, they, they all are kind of haunted in different ways. So I want to get back to Mimi as well, who you mentioned, the mother, who uh, she's really interesting and also completely maddening uh, because for so much of the story, and I don't know if this was really true until the time you came along to write the book, but it just seemed like she was just in denial that what they had wasn't schizophrenia or what they had was fixable or they just needed different treatment. And particularly when it turns out that you know, to, at least two of them became abusive, one to a spouse, one was sexually abusive to to siblings, that she was also in denial about that. She was very clearly in denial about that. And I'm curious what you, what was your interpretation of her then? And obviously you spoke to her now, or at least contemporary with writing the book. Was this just a coping mechanism? Was this willful ignorance? I just cannot accept that this is happening, or maybe maybe it's more likely it was just some combination of of those things and more. I agree. She is fascinating. And I I resisted turning her into a stock villain. I didn't want this to be um, one of those books that blames the mother for everything. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, um, and she's way more complicated than that to justify it. She is not a monster. Um, she does a lot early in her years as a parent that is really, really hard to justify. She 
she's overly invested in the family's perfection. And so she deliberately turns a blind eye to, to a lot of the difficult things that are going on. Um, she uh, uh, puts the younger kids in harm's way, sending them to be with older in the care of some of the older siblings who are obviously not well and no good could come from doing that. And yet she does that. She does things that the sisters in particular have to find a way to try to forgive her for decades later. And so on those terms, everything I've set up till now, she sounds absolutely awful. But then once the absolute worst thing happens and there's a murder suicide and um, and and the, and her husband you know, has a debilitating stroke and she's all alone in the world and it couldn't get any worse, something shifts in her and she stops hiding things and she becomes a, um, a happy warrior for, on behalf of her six sons. She becomes um, a crusader trying to get mm-hmm. them the best healthcare, whatever that might be. And um, she wants to do it herself because she's resisting those therapists and those medical settings that blame the parents for everything. And, um, and so in a sense, she keeps the family together, a different family, 12 children, six of them schizophrenia, they would be, the kids would be homeless. They'd be out on the street or they'd be institutionalized for the rest of their life. Mm -hmm. Um, In this family, they're still around. They're still in the mix, which is both horrible and wonderful. Like it's amazing that this family stayed together, but also again, the well children, you know, it's a mixed bag for them, for the two girls in particular. It's rough. It's weird. It's weird to think that, that um, the whole world of their family pivots around the illness it, they they end up feeling neglected margaret most of all who is actually sent away they mm-hmm. something happens that they believe is wonderful uh friends of theirs who are very wealthy pull margaret out of the house when she's about to start high school and she through high school lives with this very wealthy family and goes to an exclusive private school it's as if she is rescued from the chaos of hidden valley road but she doesn't see it that way. She, and I think some, some part of her even now wonders, why was I exiled from my own family? Uh, you know, I wasn't sick. I didn't have schizophrenia. Why, why do I get banished from my own home? And, and so the complicating moment of that, again, is, is it, it brings us back to Mimi and what she, what she did. To see her now, or she's passed, but when I saw her and interviewed her for Hidden Valley Road was quite something because all of those aspects of her personality were still on display. She was not interested in wallowing in the negative. She was only interested in talking about things that were pleasant. Her daughters and I would be talking to her and her daughters would try valiantly to get her to talk about unpleasant subjects, like what it was like to be in the house with Donald or Joe, uh, what it was like to feel unsafe, what it was like to have doctors blame her. And she would play along for a short period and then spin out and change the subject and say, you know, you know, the, make a comment on how, how, the, how lunch was. And the sisters would be infuriated. They'd say, mom, and they, you know, you got to get back and talk to Bob about this. But I was appreciating it because I, I felt like I was getting a little bit of a flavor of what it was like to be around her all through the years. The same strengths she had to allow her to soldier on through the world were the things that also were not so great, were kind of debilitating about her, like helped her fail to empathize with anybody who was uh, else who was suffering around her. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So one of the many through lines in the book is the search for the possible genetic origin for schizophrenia and just generally a better understanding of how and why the disorder strikes. How much did the Galvin family contribute to the scientific effort? And as best as you can tell, where where does that search stand at this point? Understanding we may never get to a perfect answer. Um, there was a period in the 1980s where there was a researcher from the National Institute of Mental Health. Her name is Lynn DeLisi. She's still around. But she sort of made it her mission to collect genetic information on as many families like the Galvins as possible. She mm-hmm. called them multiplex families, families with many different instances of schizophrenia. And this is long before the Human Genome Project, long before... CRISPR genetic editing, she was trying to find the genetic smoking gun for schizophrenia. And so it was um, inevitable that she would cross paths with the Galvins. And in fact, they were one of the first families she heard about. And she took blood samples from everyone she could in the family and did psychiatric interviews with them in the 80s. And that blood, that sample, that genetic material ends up being a little bit like it's like the house that Jack built. Like it leads to the study that leads to the study that then gets sampled again that helps confirm the other study and becomes part of a chain of knowledge that helps uh, verify a genetic aspect to schizophrenia. This at a time where some people were blaming it on um, bad parenting or on child abuse or on uh, during, you know something in the drinking water or on marijuana. Here, here was, was proof of a genetic basis of schizophrenia, thanks in part to the Galvins. And, um, and you know, the, the book makes it very clear that this is not a small thing, that, that ever since schizophrenia had a name around the turn of mm-hmm. the 20th century, uh, experts from Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung on down have been duking it out over whether it's nature or nurture, whether schizophrenia is something that's brought on by a cruel and horrible world, your childhood or something, or whether it's something, uh, a brain disease that you are born with. And the, the, the back and forth between those debates from generation to generation to generation is fascinating to me because quite often the people who are arguing that it's not genetic are the ones who are more humane, the ones who don't want to treat people with schizophrenia like lab rats and pick apart their brains or give them lobotomies. They want to be kind to them and help them. And yet scientifically, they might have been wrong. So the complexity of that appealed to me. And, and we see it today with... Um, any number of high-level arguments. The people on one side and people on the other side are at cross purposes, and and you can be right and wrong at the same time. You can be well-meaning, but also make the wrong argument. Uh, I 
I felt like that that science story was a perfect was a worthwhile story to tell. Uh, we we love the stories that are like are like polio, where you know there's a problem and the scientists come in and save the day and solve it. But mm-hmm. I think it's probably more common in science for there to be long arguments stretching over decades, where you know an idea starts to lose its value because it starts to slowly get disproven. But the person who heads the department at the major university doesn't retire. And so they keep on making the same mistake for 10 more years. I, I think that those stories to me are are um, are more interesting. So I'd like to switch gears and talk a little bit about your previous book, Lost Girls, which was about the Gilgo Beach murders on Long Island, which you wrote several years ago and only to have the police finally arrest a suspect, uh, I think in May or June of this year, in those murders, which led you to follow up with a really long, wonderful New York Times Magazine story, which I linked to on my blog a couple of weeks ago, about just how badly the Long Island authorities botched this investigation. In your opinion, was this a matter of authorities just not caring about dead sex workers, to put it a, a little crassly, I guess? Or was there something beyond that at work within the culture of the Long Island police and the county authorities? I think it certainly starts with indifference to that. I think that it it's very clear from my reporting, but also the reporting of other people, that if if these victims had been college students or office workers, you know, that, that, that there would be much more of a, uh, uh, urgency on the part of the police. Mm-hmm. That as it stood, they were sort of in a defensive crouch when the media came and looked into a serial killer case and they didn't collaborate with other agencies. They didn't do anything. And there was this kind of this creeping sense that it was something that was happening to them, that they just had the bad luck to be in a jurisdiction where these bodies turned up. Mm-hmm. It was exactly the wrong response. But then as the years went on, you know, they found they found the first bodies in this case in 2010. My book came out in 2013. So that's 10 years from, from 2013. To me, it was an open question how much of it was indifference and apathy and misogyny and how much of it was incompetence and corruption. And surely there was corruption in Long Island. There were some big cases of one dirty cop in particular, but it was hard to connect the dots between what was going on in this case or not going on and the corruption, except to just say that there's something crooked going on in Suffolk County. But once they made the arrest and uh, the suspect, Rex Herman, was someone who had been living in plain sight the whole time and in exactly the place where everyone thought that he might be, um, exactly the place that their own evidence suggested that he might be. And as Mm -hmm. soon as it came out that there was a tip that they, you know, let lie fallow for years that actually could have led them to him earlier and that there was technology available to find him that they never bothered using, and that there were other agencies that had better abilities that could have helped find him that they didn't bother dealing with. Then suddenly it became easier to draw a line between um, the failures of law enforcement culture in Suffolk County and the failure failures of the Gilgo Beach investigation. And that's what this latest New York Times Magazine story tries to do. It tries to draw direct bright lines between mm-hmm. what went wrong in the case and what's been going on wrong in Suffolk County for decades. Um, I, just as a side note, mm-hmm. when I was reporting, first reporting on this case, I, um, I, I and all of the other reporters who I was talking to who were covering it were just amazed that there was no headway because we all grew up in the culture of CSI and law and order where there would be an arrest. And not only that, these were 
these were sex workers who used technology. They had phones and they had smart netbooks or whatnot, you know, and they had um, Craigslist. And there was a Craigslist killer that had been apprehended uh, a year and a half earlier, and they found him in 48 hours. And mm-hmm. and I and everyone was looking at each other, going, "What? What's what's the holdup? Like, why aren't they with a couple clicks? Couldn't they just find this guy? What is happening here? What is wrong?" And uh, I decided to proceed with the book anyway because I I felt that the issue of apathy and indifference and misogyny, frankly, was and 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 class class issues about about sex work and about the families right. of these women where they came from. I thought that was enough to carry a book because some of my favorite nonfiction is about that, that helps readers understand a part of the world that you wouldn't otherwise um, ever know about. I, I lo- particularly love Random Family by Adrienne Nicole LeBlanc, which is about welfare mothers in the Bronx, but it reads like, like a Russian novel. You know, it mm-hmm. reads like a soap opera, like you want to know what happens to these people. And also Behind the Beautiful at Forever's by Catherine Blue, which really, does the same thing with a family in the slums of Mumbai. It is it, when you hear family in the slums of Mumbai, you think you're going to be, you know, experiencing some sort of really devastating, sad documentary. But this is a rip roaring story, an amazing story about people that really takes you through it and also helps you learn about their lives. And you come away thinking these are real people, not just poster children. And that's what I wanted to do in this case. I wanted to write about the women in this case and their families and the whole media uh, circus that happened after the case started out and to just drive home the fact that these women were not living off the grid. We know their names. They weren't trafficked in from another country. Um, they, they defied all of the, the stereotypes from all the crime shows. Um, they are not just plot devices. They are people. And mm-hmm. so I, I, I was, um, that ended up being a, a really satisfying book to do. And it, it ended up, I think it stayed in print because the case was stayed unsolved. And also mm-hmm. because there was a true crime boom, like the, a year later, there was serial and the jinx and making a murderer. So people were, people were in the mood for offbeat or unconventional true crime stories that weren't just about Ted Bundy. They wanted something about the victims or about an exoneration or, or other unconventional approaches. So lost girls had a, had a life that kept on living and eventually even a movie on Netflix. So that it, mm-hmm. I was amazed to see all of that happen, but nothing amazed me more than when there was an arrest and the guy had been <laughs> living right there with 97 gun permits the whole time. Uh, I'm curious too, you you detail uh, a lot of the, the history of corruption among police forces in Suffolk and Nassau counties. Um, you mentioned the John Pius murder, which took place in Smithtown where I grew up when I was a little kid. And that resulted in eight separate trials over the course of 24 years before finally the last one closed, which isn't to say we even really necessarily got at the truth of it. It's just that it's, quote unquote, over. And all of that was due to police and district attorney uh, misconduct in those cases and in those trials. I'm curious if you had a reaction at all from either from the book or particularly from your most recent article from police or other authorities on Long Island, because you certainly paint them in a bad light. Well, I guess I could argue they painted themselves in a bad light. You you just put it out there. Yeah, that, there are a couple of investigative nuggets in the story that that you could mm-hmm. call investigative journalism, like little teeny scoops. But in mm-hmm. general, I, I would call it, and I'm not putting it down because I'm proud of it, but I would call the story an explainer, something that, mm-hmm. that pulls together and wraps up in a bow information that's been out there for forever, but that has not been 
um, uh, delivered in quite this way, in a way that really helps you understand the big picture. Um, it's like one-stop shopping for understanding the problem. And so mm -hmm. I did not get a lot of reaction from, from law enforcement or from politicians out there because in a way they'd been hammered on all of these separate things over the years, you know, for a very long time, certain people have even gone to jail for it. So, um, it was not out of, I was, wasn't really speaking out of turn saying that there had been, um, huge miscarriage of justices over the years and that the homicide department bragged about coerced cases and things like that. These, these were amazing and astonishing things for some readers to read, but for the people involved, they've been, they've been knocked for it for years. So I, uh, it was like a, so what else is new? I am curious, by the way, just in, given some of the other books that you mentioned to, have you read, I'm actually going to pull this up so I get the title right, The Spirit Catches You and You Fall Down, yes. um, which Wonderful. pops it, as you're describing it, like that's that kind of book where if I said, yeah, it's about a Hmong family that emigrated to the United States and their baby has a severe form of epilepsy. That sounds miserable, right? And it is not at all. The book is not, obviously it's sad. There are elements of of tragedy here, but- it is wonderful and it is very humanist. And that's what I appreciate about your book too, is that you take the subjects referring to Hidden Valley Road here, you take your subject and you really humanize them. Every one of them, even the ones who have severe mental illness, who did terrible things, you give them full fleshed portraits on the page to make them come across as, as real people, including the ones who've since died too, who were, I imagine it was more of a challenge to create real three-dimensional pictures of them. And I think you really succeeded in that. And that's part of why the book is so fascinating and was so, for me at least, so fast to read. It is, it is very luxurious, I have to say, to have a whole book to devote to stuff like this because it means you have time. You have time to go back over and over again and talk to various people and get various perspectives and do some digging and find those medical records that might've taken a while to find. And it, it, for someone who's been a deadline reporter, you know, for, for magazines, for weeklies, my entire career, it, it mm -hmm. was, it, it, there's some, it, obviously it's huge, hugely anxious thing to write a book, like, oh my God, what have I fallen on my face? But on the other hand, it's like, it's like being handed a Ferrari or something. Like suddenly there are all these things you can do. You can wait for months to get the right records or you can come back to somebody and talk to them six times or you can decide that you want to meet with that person's therapist or whatever, you know, like things that you would never have the time to do otherwise. And so it's exciting. And uh, I love the spirit catches you and you fall down. It was, it had passed me by when it first came out, but I I read it after I wrote Hidden Valley Road and and really admired it. I do think that... um. That, that books like Hidden Valley Road are out there. They're, it's sort of a, I don't like a subgenre of narrative nonfiction. It's mm -hmm. I'm a, I'm a tremendous fan of of David Grant, who you have on the show, and yep. and, and and Patrick Radden Keefe. They are they are um, they are doing very research heavy narrative stories, but um, I'm not sure that that I gravitate toward the same subjects that David does. I, I he he is quite often writing about it, you know adventurers or or historical um episodes where whereas i'm i for whatever reason keep being thrown into the path of people who are suffering right now so it's a slightly different thing uh patrick Ryden keeps say nothing is amazing by the way for folks who are interested too it's one of the greatest nonfiction books i'd say i've read in the last 10 years certainly absolutely yeah it's great and the, yeah those two guys are the nicest guys in the world david was wonderful <laughs> he was absolutely wonderful um so i'm glad we have uh, we are shared we have, share our fandom of his work. 
My guest today has been journalist Robert Kolker. Uh, as I mentioned, his books are Hidden Valley Road, Inside the Mind of an American Family, and Lost Girls, an Unsolved American Mystery. And you can also find him on the site formerly known as Twitter at Bob Kolker, B-O-B-K-O-L-K-E-R. Robert, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Keith. This was great. That's all for this week's show. Uh, just one other note, too. I have an emailed newsletter, free email newsletter that I have uh, had been neglecting for a few months, but it is back. I sent out a fresh issue of it on Saturday. If you are interested, you can subscribe at tinyletter.com slash keeplaw. It will, I think, never be more than once a week. It is more likely it will be maybe three a month if I'm diligent about it. Uh, I tend to be a little more ambitious with my free writing and then um, don't actually do all the things I want to do. But I'm trying to be better, at least. And I've been blogging a lot more at MeadowParty.com slash blog, where you can read book reviews, music updates, and board game reviews. And uh, now we're getting into movie season, so I will be back on the movie reviews as well pretty soon. Thank you again for listening. Stay safe. <laughs>